Welcome to today's podcast, Best Practices for Fostering Civility in the Workplace. The recent avalanche of sexual harassment cases has marked a cultural turning point in human capital management. For too long, employees, especially women, have been subject to unwanted and inappropriate behavior from colleagues and others in positions of power. Until now, fear and futility has often kept the victims of harassment from speaking up. But we've hit a watershed moment where a hostile workplace environment is no longer acceptable or tolerated. In its place, companies are focused on fostering a positive work environment for all employees. And as we've seen, the risks to companies for not acting are many, reputational, financial, and legal, among others. In this podcast, Rain Serena Vash sits down with Catherine Nook Friedman, partner of Nook Friedman and Sarah, to explore this issue further. Catherine enables companies to proactively address and effectively manage workplace issues related to harassment and discrimination complaints, unconscious bias, disability and leave law, wage and hour disputes, social media risk, staff reductions in force, and high-risk terminations. She works with human resources management professionals providing guidance and instruction to help them better manage and proactively address their training programs and many other employment law issues. As an employment law training instructor and industry thought leader, Catherine partners with clients to develop and implement strategies to manage risk, comply with the law, increase productivity, and create an overall better workplace. With that, I'll turn it over to Rain Serena Vash. Serena? Thanks, Greg, and thank you, Catherine, for joining us today. Catherine, I'm going to start by just asking you, how has this issue changed over time? My understanding is that you've been uh, in this area, both in employment law and also with your own um, HR training uh, group called SHIFT. How has this issue of sexual harassment and civility in the workplace changed since you started in this area? Well, hello again, Serena. It's so nice to be on the uh, the call today. So since I started in this area, I mean, if we're talking about 25 years ago, it's interesting because you would think things have really changed over the past 25 years, but what we've experienced over this past year shows us that they really haven't changed that much and that if you look at the past six months in terms of what I'm seeing employers focusing on to impact change and actually change going forward, that's where I get really excited, seeing the progress that we're just now starting to see companies uh, make and put into place. Because when I started our online training company a few years ago, one of the drivers to really creating a a more in-depth training product was the fact that I looked at the EEOC's charges and the historical data behind the charges and the fact that even though employers had been training their workforces on preventing harassment and discrimination literally for decades and yet the number of harassment complaints filed in a year would plateau in a good year and continue to increase in a bad year, it really caused us to think we need to do something different. Whatever employers are doing is not working. And so I think now, finally, with you know, with that data behind them and more importantly with the high-profile harassment incidents, employers are starting to do things differently, really, in, in the moment. So it's, it's, um, it's really exciting. So what have you seen employers doing differently in this last six six months that's got you so excited? So they're starting to go beyond just discussing the requirements under the law that managers have to prevent harassment and discrimination that employees have. And they're really, it's really a return to an emphasis on 
corporate culture and core values, and we're also seeing, and we're trying to lead the charge in this regard, really an expansion to looking at the issues of understanding unconscious bias and how it plays out in the workplace, and then more importantly, putting strategies in place to tackle and overcome unconscious bias so that biases like those don't impact the decision-making of employees and leaders in the workplace. We're also seeing companies go above and beyond, again, just policy and law by looking more carefully and emphasizing more the need to create an inclusive and what we refer to as upstander culture. Have everybody understand that they play a role in building their company's corporate culture and that everybody can be an upstander and a champion in this regard to help stomp out systemic harassment issues and instead really refocus on corporate culture in a good way. So talk to us a little about a little bit about the issue of unconscious bias in the workplace and how that plays out. What are some unconscious biases that people bring to the workplace and how does it play out um, in hiring folks and in the way employees and leadership interact with one another? Um, absolutely. There, there are just so many ways where bias can inadvertently play a role with respect to almost every aspect of the employment process, whether it's hiring, whether it's mentoring, whether it's performance reviews, but I'll just give you one quick example that's, you know, that's very well known when, when you talk about unconscious bias. There is, um, there have been studies done and the implicit association test has also measured the fact that the majority of the population, I think it's about 70%, more clearly associate men with math and science and women with the arts. And the way that might play out in the interviewing context really was shown clearly in a study that involved identical resumes that were divided into two piles. Half were given a female name, half were given a male name, and those resumes were distributed to major universities across the country to to lab managers, scientists, and professors who were asked to pick who would you hire as some hire somebody into your science lab. And they were asked to rate those individuals based on their hireability and their competence and how likely that that scientist, inventor, professor would be to mentor the person. And the men were rated much more highly in terms of comp competence, hireability, and interest in mentoring them than were the women. And again, these are identical resumes with the only difference being a male name and a female name. So that's just one example of how somebody, when they're trying to pick the best person for the job, trying to get the best person in there, could inadvertently give in to their unconscious biases that they believe men are better at science and math and lean towards a male candidate when in fact they may have a female candidate who could be even better for the position. So that's just one clear example. So if most of us come to our employment and, and our workplace believing that we're ethical and believing that we are unbiased, how can we take note of um, unconscious biases uh, that affect our perception, our attitude, our behaviors, our attention, the things that we listen for and listen to? How can people and employees begin to recognize those unconscious biases and, and ferret them out? That's a really good question. And it really starts with 
education and enlightenment because the concept of unconscious bias is becoming more well-known with diversity and inclusion professionals and with HR leaders, but the vast majority of the vast majority of workplaces, they, of leaders within those workplaces, they're not familiar with the term. Maybe they've heard of it, but they don't know what it means. And so really, I'm a big believer that you need to educate and enlighten your entire workforce. They need to understand that unconscious bias exists and that we all have unconscious biases and that we all need to get more in touch with what each of our biases are, whether it's by taking our own implicit association test, whether it's just seeing examples of how these studies play out in the workplace and learning about the unconscious biases that, that exist statistically, and then being more self-reflective and looking at yourself to see what biases you might have. And, and I've actually given a lot of thought to not only how do you, how do you help people identify their unconscious biases through education, which I believe a lot of it's done through training, whether it's in person, whether it's online, but then also really thinking about once we've identified our unconscious biases, what are things, what are steps that we can take as individuals to neutralize and interrupt those biases, and what are structures or infrastructure that our companies can put in place to help guard against those unconscious biases seeping into the employment process when they might be harmful instead of helpful. So let's take those one at a time. Let's talk a little bit about steps that an individual can take to neutralize those unconscious biases. And then let's talk about steps that a company can take to put a structure in place to make sure that those biases um, stay out of uh, workplace judgment and decision-making as much as possible. Let's start with the individuals and then with the companies. Mm -hmm. So I view every individual in the workplace, every leader in the workplace, as somebody who's moving themselves along a spectrum of you know, evolution as a leader, for example. And so you know, the first step along the evolution, if you're talking about unconscious bias, is to really understand the concept of unconscious bias, understand that biases exist. And then after you understand that concept, then you need to start to become more self-observant. You have to pay attention to your thinking, to your assumptions, your behaviors, and then really become more analytical. Don't just operate based on instinct and intuition and that sort of thing, but really start to take notice if and when you jump to conclusions about people or issues within the workplace. So you can work, um, Daniel Kahneman's a really well-known uh, Nobel Prize winning psychologist who has written a book called um, slow and fast thinking. And he talks about how people can work to engage their slower system of the brain to help them become more analytical and more observant and more focused. And I think that's what leaders who are working their way along their the spectrum of their evolution as a leader become. They become much more observant of their actions and more cognizant and more focused. Um, and there's so many, you know, I, I, I could keep talking forever, but there's so many different things that individuals can do from, as we talked about, becoming more aware to doubting their objectivity to, you know, a big one that I'm focused on right now is looking for counter stereotypes because research has shown that simply viewing stereotype busting images and reading stereotype busting articles actually helps reduce implicit bias. So that's something that um, that 
every employer can do and every individual can really do. Terrific. Now, um, if you could then focus a little bit about the company, is there is there something that a company can do um, in its own structure to root out some of these uh, implicit biases? Yeah, so companies can really start examining their existing practices and figuring out, you know, what, what structures might be needed. You know, if you're talking about the hiring context, that's a really discrete area where I've seen companies focus to see what can we do to cut down on unconscious bias. And one of the things that I've seen companies do is they have put structured interviews into place because oftentimes there's some type of affinity bias that can play a role in the interviewing context. And when interviewing managers don't have specific questions that they're asking of each and every employee, that leaves them room to veer off and have a conversation based on mutual interests and mutual commonalities with someone who they're interviewing with. And they may end up at the end of that interview having had a great conversation and feeling a great bond with the person, but they didn't cover the things they needed to cover to make sure they were getting the best qualified person in for the position. And they may, in fact, have a blind spot to any of those candidates' weaknesses because they felt as though they just had such a strong uh, strong sense of, of you know, commonality during the interview process. So structured interviews or tying back to that study I mentioned with the applicants, the male applicants being chosen and rated higher as the female applicants, one thing that companies have done to combat that from happening in the hiring processes is they've turned towards blind resume screenings to really take out the information that is not going to be determinative as to whether or not somebody is going to be a good employee at the company. So those are just some examples. You've talked a little bit about core values and corporate culture. How, does, how do core values and corporate culture keep behavior in check, keep um, sexual harassment and, and uh, bad behavior out of companies and infuse civility into the workplace? Right, right. Well, what, what we have seen is the companies where their core values are so strong, especially when they involve integrity and mutual respect and doing the right thing, where the company is actually hiring based on those core values and evaluating performance based on an employee's living those core values and firing based on whether or not people meet those core values, they are essentially leaving little to no room for the other systemic harassment issues, which are in fact contradictory to many of these essential core values. So some companies don't really live and breathe and hire and fire based on their core values, and so those core values don't really serve them, whereas others really are making sure that they're not only carefully defined, but carefully articulated and carefully used throughout managing the entire employee process, and that's where they get the better results because the focus is on, on all the, the positive and the living, the core values, as opposed to the, extra, the excess room, which might allow people to go awry. So let's suppose a company, one of their core values is ethics and integrity. How does that company hire 
evaluate, promote, and fire if they need to based on uh, that particular core value? How do you actually incorporate it in? And my corollary question is, can you monetize ethical behavior? So in terms of how you incorporate it into your hiring and promotional and you know firing practices, hiring, for example, the HR teams would work to figure out this, you know, uh, we have a very strong core value involving ethics and integrity. What are questions that we can ask each and every candidate where they can provide examples of when they acted with great integrity, where they um, showed clearly their strong, you know, ethical background and really interview to make sure that you get that information of how people, you know, how people have experienced these core values previously. Because if it's something that's new to somebody and they haven't experienced it in a prior company, then you're going to want to see, you know, do they live their life according to these types of core values? And then if they don't, then you're going to, if you're going to bring that person on, you're going to have to know that you're going to be teaching, whether it's an old dog or a new dog, in any event, you're teaching them new tricks, new values, and they, that may be an uphill battle as opposed to hiring somebody who, also, who already shares those same core values. So that's an example of how it would come into play in the hiring context. And from an evaluation standpoint, you'd, of course, have your HR team really carefully craft questions that can be involved in the performance evaluation that really get at whether or not this employee or this leader is acting in a way that shows their commitment to ethics and integrity and that kind of thing. So it's really important that you, you get specific with respect to how are you measuring both when you're deciding whether to bring somebody on and when you're deciding what type of evaluation that person should get, how are you measuring whether or not they're living up to your core values or can live up to your core values. And in terms of how can you monetize that, I'm not really I'm not really sure. I know there you know, I know there have been a number of studies which looked at monetizing diversity and inclusion in the workplace, but I'm not as familiar with the studies related to monetizing ethics. So, and the question, I guess, um, I have I've framed it that way, but the question is also how do, do employees and leadership and management's compensation packages um, reflect ethics and integrity um, across across their their own their own work and in the work that they do? Is there a way um, that HR practices can highlight ethics, ethics and integrity uh, and civility and leadership um, in terms of compensation packages? Well, I think when, when you're talking about evaluating your employees and their promotion of the company's core values, I definitely think that should show through in an evaluation and then that should be tied to that individual's compensation, whether it's in bonus or otherwise. And I haven't seen many companies be especially creative in this area yet, but off the top of my head, I could see companies contemplating whether to have a specific core values-focused bonus. And if there are, are employees who are 
living and promoting the core values throughout the organization, there may be a special targeted bonus on a scale of zero to whatever percent that those employees are eligible to earn based on living the company's core values. Because you could see that, and, and this is this is so important to employees. I mean, it's, it's it's a critical factor in employment, right? Is getting compensated. You can see that um, somebody might choose uh, not to move forward with a project if there's a conflict of interest, or if they think it's too risky, and that person might end up, you know, um, generating less money for the company. But they're really protecting the reputation of the company. They're making you know, good risk management decisions, they're acting uh, within the core values of the company. So this is something that this really fascinated me uh, specifically on how do, how do we, um, how do we encourage people to make good ethical decisions? How do we encourage people to make good risk management choices uh, when at the end of the day, their good choice may mean less profit to the company, but or less short-term profit, but more long-term gain or more um, protection of reputational values to the company. This is something that I find right. to be pretty fascinating. It is, it is. And, you know, I go back and forth because even though, you know, I just suggested a, a distinct bonus, the other side of my brain is saying, but if they're core values and they're essential values, then that should just be an absolute expectation of, the job and to to bonus somebody who's living the core values because they're living the core values seems like you're you're bonusing them for doing something that they really should be doing every step of the way but but you're right people do like to be incentivized so then that makes me think it needs to go back to hiring and the emphasis on hiring and people hiring people who have and show that propensity towards your core values to begin with So let's talk a little bit about about training. Um, how can training programs be improved, and how have they improved um, since you've been involved in HR training? Yeah, I think training programs can be improved by really making sure that the learners are active participants. So whether they're active participants in an instructor-led training or whether they're active participants in an online training, that's the key because you know, there are, are studies out there that analyze really how do people learn and it's something like people will remember 10% um, of what they hear and will remember 20% of what they see, but people will remember 80% of what they experience. So to have somebody just stand up and lecture doesn't cut it if you really want to impact change and not just have it be a check the box. And if you have somebody just click through a course online quickly without really experiencing the material, that doesn't cut it either. And you know, for example, one of our one of our really innovative online training modules has the learner put into an exact situation where a video pops up and an employee talks to the learner and says, this is what I'm experiencing right now. This is my issue. What can we do about it? And then the learner has to choose between different options to figure out how would I respond to this employee if they actually came to me. And once the learner chooses a response, then the employee 
responds in the video again. And, and how they respond is going to be completely dependent on what selection the learner chose. And so the employee might be happy because the learner might have just said, I understand that you feel uncomfortable with that person, so I'm just going to move you to another location. And that might have made the employee happy. But then the course pops up and says, although you made the employee happy, you need to keep in mind that these types of decisions need to be run past human resources because we don't want this later to look like a case where the employee was moved to somewhere out of the middle of the action and now views it as retaliation. And, and anyway, there's continues a back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So the learner is really participating in the activity and has a much greater likelihood of remembering what they learned through that exercise because they were an actual participant. So the training really needs to be interactive and engage the learner's attention in order for it to be impactful. Otherwise, it's simply just to check the box. You can prove that you did the training, but who knows if it really moved the needle within the organization. When I think of the issue of um, sexual harassment and civility in the workplace, different people uh, take on or play different roles in a situation uh, where there's some difficulty or offensive behavior. Um, you have leadership. You have someone who has um, who has offended or or been the the actor vis-a-vis -vis the offensive behavior. You have the person who's received that action or the target. So you have the offender, the target, the leadership, and you have colleagues who may be bystanders. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about each of those roles and how training can be geared toward uh, each of those types of individuals? And also, if I've left anybody out, if I've left out, well, there's also these other three people that you have to think about. Um, can you talk a little bit about training each of those individual types of people. Right, right. Well, right off the bat, it makes me think of the value of the training that, that I like to call building an inclusive and upstander culture, because each one of those segments of the employee population can learn about the role they play and how they can be an upstander when we're dealing with these issues of harassment and discrimination in the workplace. So, for example, the target can be an upstander in the sense that they will be empowered and know that their employer has this culture of, you know, this upstander culture and wants employees to stand up and respond if they either witness or they experience something that's wrong and crosses the line. And even though you can't require under law that somebody who's the target go back to the person who is the offender, you can encourage people that if they feel comfortable doing so, they certainly have the employer's backing to respond to that person and to stand up for themselves. Um, similarly, those who witness a situation that crosses the line and is inappropriate, they are empowered and upstander training teaches those individuals the types of things they can do to stand up for somebody who is a target, the things they can say, the things they can do um, when they witness somebody being the target to inappropriate or improper conduct. And then from a leadership standpoint, creating an inclusive and upstander culture really continues to put that not just the burden, but empowers leadership to understand the ever-important role that they play 
as upstanders and in setting the tone to make sure the message is clear that this is a, a workplace where people are empowered to, to do the right thing, to stand up for others when they see something happening that's not the right thing. Um, and the offender, really, they're basically just put on notice that everybody's encouraged to be an upstander and everybody's going to help each other identify their blind spots so that if somebody does say something or do something that crosses the line, they need to know that the colleagues are going to be on the lookout and are going to be communicating back to let people know when they've crossed the line and when something is unacceptable. So um, it's really, you know, it's really tackling all four perspectives through one training. So you raise a good point in terms of, you know, when somebody crosses the line. Um, but in, in my experience, it's people often don't know that they're crossing the line. And somebody may um, do something offensive or say something offensive, and they're not aware. They, they're not aware that they've done it. Um, and if you point it out to them, perhaps they'll they'll uh, recognize that they've done it, or perhaps they will rationalize that, well, they, I'm a good person, I'm an ethical person, um, I wouldn't do anything offensive. How do you raise awareness, and how do companies raise awareness, change behavior, and empower people to do the right thing, whether that person is the target or recipient of offensive conduct, a witness to offensive conduct, or themselves somebody who uh, unwittingly or, or not on purpose uh, might do something offensive? Well, again, I think I think the training helps in that regard to just educate and inform the learner that many of these statements made and actions taken are not, in fact, intentional. And the bottom line is the harassment discrimination laws, they don't concern themselves with the fact of whether or not conduct is intentional or not. The bottom line is what's the impact of the comment? How does it impact the target or those bystanders who are observing the behavior. And if it's considered harassing or discriminatory, then it doesn't matter that the offender meant no harm by it. So by going through this type of training, the offender really gets the message loud and clear that you know, it's not good enough just to have good intent. I need to be educated. I need to know what the standards are, and I need to really act in accordance with the standards and lead if I'm a leader, but even if I'm not a leader, act in accordance with the standards or I'm, you know, or I'm causing problems within the workplace. So, um, and, and through encouragement of this whole upstander culture, these people who don't know they're crossing the line and may mean well but are still crossing the line, their colleagues are going to be, in a sense, assisting them with their blind spots and letting them know, look, that comment offended me. I don't feel comfortable with that type of commentary. Or they're going to show by body language. They're going to turn away or walk away. So the employee needs to be educated. The, you know, the offender needs to be educated. And then the workplace needs to be consistent with that education. And the upstanders need to help that offender continue to identify their blind spots and, in a sense, to get with the, to get with the program. And somebody who is a witness to um, sexual harassment or harassment or discrimination, what can they do? What can they say? Not the person who has been uh, targeted or, for lack of a better term, a victim of, of harassment or discrimination, but a witness. What can they do? What can they say um, to help root that out in the workplace? 
Right. Well, it all really is very fact-based, so it really depends what are they witnessing. Are they witnessing a clear violation of policy or the law, in which case the best thing for them to do is to loop in human resources. If it's not a clear violation of policy or the law, but it's just something that's inconsistent with the core values and the culture of the company, then there's a number of things they can say. I mean, again, I love to operate with a spectrum, so I think of it as there's a spectrum between bystander, truly bystander behavior to truly upstander behavior, and people can choose to act anywhere in between the two points so that, you know, a true upstander, if, if she or he observes something, might, you know, say matter-of-factly right to that person that, I observed that comment, you know, that, that that offends me, makes me feel really uncomfortable, probably makes other people feel uncomfortable too, and it's not consistent with how we operate here. Somebody who maybe isn't that confident as an upstander might joke about the comment and, you know, make sort of an offhanded remark like, yeah, with respect to the comment. Um, somebody who is even, you know, less confident might again, even if it doesn't violate policy or the law, might go to HR and say, I think this team needs a refresher on how we treat each other because I saw some behavior that was inconsistent with that. So there's all different steps that somebody can take depending on their confidence level, the specifics of the situation, and of course, depending on how much the company has empowered individuals to, to really speak up and act like upstanders. Well, Catherine, you have said, what gets measured gets managed. How do you measure civility in the workplace so that you can manage it properly? Right. Well, that's a good question. Um, civility, you know, high levels of civility and respect in the workplace lead to a number of different benefits. So they often lead to high morale, which can be measured in employee surveys. Uh, it can be measured in high levels of productivity. So again, that can be measured in terms of looking statistically at the numbers. It can be measured in terms of um, not only success in attracting candidates, but also in retention rates, so looking to see, do we have high turnover? Is there a revolving door here? And so those are the types of things that a company can really have key performance indicators that measure, whether it's through survey, whether it's through numbers or otherwise, those types of things, morale, retention, et cetera, and look to see what efforts they may be incorporating into the workplace to increase the levels of civility and respect and see what results those efforts are having on those indicators. Talk to us a little bit about the role of leadership. What's the role of leadership in assuring a, uh, a workplace that is civil and without harassment and discrimination? Right. Well, I mean, when we're talking about civility and respect, it really all emanates from leadership, and leaders really need to be on board with those principles. And it's interesting because over the past year, I've been called into so many types of firms, whether it's private, large law firms or financial service companies and other industries who believe that 
their organizations are just not exhibiting the levels of civility and respect that they want and need in their workplace. And so I come in and I speak with leaders on everything from leadership communication styles to emotional intelligence and what we as leaders can do to really increase our awareness of the importance of these things and then increase our effectiveness in these areas as well. And it really just, it's, I I love the phrase that I learned from, from my corporate coach, which is really that as a leader, we need to understand that our mood creates the weather. So if I'm a leader and I walk into a room, I'm either going to create a sunny day or a stormy day or somewhere in between. And every leader has to understand that they have that potential impact on their team, on their environment, and on their workplace. And what they do with that is is up to them. But companies can really help leaders by, again, educating and enlightening them, enlightening them on the importance of these of these factors like emotional intelligence and strong leadership communication. And that's becoming public too. So whether it's the CEO of Fox Fox being um, removed from his position, whether it's you know Matt Lauer being removed from his position, whether it's all these other high-profile people who are being removed from their positions, that's giving others who are watching that even more encouragement to come up if they've experienced something similar because they see that the public support for these issues is becoming much stronger than it used to be and corporate support for making the right decisions, whether the right decisions because it's the right thing to do, whether it's the right decision because it's the right financial thing to do, who knows, but the bottom line is everybody's observing that, and so that is encouraging more people to come forward as well, I think. Um, How do companies balance due process for people who are accused of of offensive behavior, whether it's harassing behavior or discriminatory behavior? How do you balance the due process in determining whether or not that an offensive act occurred uh, with protecting your employees from that type of behavior. Right. Well, the law requires that employers do a prompt and thorough investigation. So that usually is the due process that is given to the the alleged offending employee where the employer really looks into all the all the facts and all the witnesses and all the assumptions and then the employers really charged with using their good, reasonable business judgment in making a decision. They don't have to be 100% correct, but they have to follow the process, and that's why they need to do the, the prompt and thorough investigation. And, and then they need to, again, use their good business judgment to impose some type of remedy depending on what the employer determines has happened, in their, again, in their best business judgment. So, Catherine, I've asked you a lot of questions, and I wanted to know, is there anything else that you want to add on this particular issue? The only other thing I'd add is, I know I've said it throughout, I am a firm believer that, you know, I, I love the quote, I love the quote by Maya Angelou that basically says, 
do the best you can until you know better. And then once you know better, do better. I really believe that employees and leaders, they can't do better until they know better. And the only way they're going to know better is through education and through enlightenment. And so we as corporate leaders need to set our employees and our workplaces up for success by training them on this information, by making sure they understand what our expectations are of them as contributors to the workplace and the betterment of the workplace. And then once they understand that, then we're going to be in a much better position to, one, hold them accountable for that understanding, which will result in, you know, moving the needle more effectively within the workplace. So that's, you know, that's my message that I'm extremely committed to. So, Catherine, I want to thank you very much for joining us today, for taking your time um, to to speak with us on the issues of uh, civility in the workplace and rooting out harassing and discriminatory behavior in the workplace. I really appreciate your time today. I'm going to turn it back over to Greg. Great. Thanks, Serena. Great. Thank you. That concludes today's podcast.